Last week on the show, we heard from this super cute family, Nishtamira and Jill Carroll. A joyful, rock-solid family full of love that honors our individuality and grounds each of us as we create our lives together. And that's part of the mission statement that we have for our relationship. We actually have a mission statement. We are those people. Yeah. Aren't they the worst? We love them. In that episode, we heard how they adopted their kid Shiv six years ago. If you missed it, that's episode number 197. It's the one with tape measure ponytails in the title. So while we were working on that story, we heard from a listener, Sony, who's in the middle of the adoption process right now. And like Nishta, Sony is an Indian American person adopting transracially. For Sony, the whole process has been really frustrating. Not because adoption's expensive, not because it's a long process that can take years and years to match with a child. Sony is being challenged in a totally unexpected way because of how adoption agencies talk about race and culture and parenting. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Andrea Salenzi. So today on the show, we're going to talk to Sony and get a tiny glimpse of what it's like to be a person of color trying to adopt in the U.S. right now. And later on in the show, we're going to check in with Longest Shortest Time's creator and executive producer, Hillary Frank. Hey! She's got a new project she's working on. She wants your help. I need it! I need you! Stick around! First, let's meet Sony. Sorry, my, if there's, like, background noise, it's because my cat's walking on, around the computer, so I'll have to move him. <laughs> This is my favorite sound as cat on keyboard. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Now he's just staring at me. Because Sony's literally in the middle of the adoption process right now, wants to preserve their future kids' privacy, we're using a pseudonym. And one more thing. Sony is genderqueer and uses they-them pronouns. We've covered this on the show before, but as a refresher, here's how that works. Instead of saying he or she, we're using they. So an example sentence. A few months ago, Sony was in a classroom... And they were one of the few people of color in the room. Two couples were black, and there was one single woman who was black as well. And then I was the only other person of color in the room. And then everybody else in the room was white. It was early evening. The classroom was full, about 50 people total. And this was a mandatory workshop for people considering transracial adoption. In other words, adopting a child who'd be a different race than they were. And the class started to do an exercise. Just one exercise out of many that night designed to get prospective parents talking about race. In this one, the instructor was having everyone read something called White Privilege Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. It's a short piece by Peggy McIntosh. That's her speaking at a social justice conference in Boston. McIntosh is a feminist, anti-racist scholar who wrote The Invisible Knapsack in the 1980s when she was a professor at Wellesley. The Invisible Knapsack is a metaphor. It's basically a long list detailing all the ways the world systematically privileges white people, all these little privileged treats in your backpack. But the knapsack is invisible because white people are taught not to see the system. Here are some of the things on the list. Like, number one. I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. Number four. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured I will not be followed or harassed. Number five, I can turn on the television or open to the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. Number 20, I can do well in a challenging situation without being called a credit to my race. 
Number 25, if a traffic cop pulls me over or if the IRS audits my tax return, I can be sure I haven't been singled out because of my race. And number 46. I can choose blemish cover or bandages in so-called flesh color and have them more or less match my skin. At the workshop that night, the woman leading the class wanted to go around the room and have everyone read off the list. And I was first. Sony wondered if the instructor was going to say anything. Maybe she'd say, read this and think about the privilege you have as a South Asian person. Or... Read this and think about how it makes you feel that white people have this experience. But instead, the instructor turned to Sony and said, Okay, your turn. And I was like, wait, really? Really? Is no one going to say anything about the fact that I'm not white? No one said anything. They read the sentence, and the instructor moved on to the next person. Later on in the night, the instructor said, We will never know what it's like to be a person of color. And I was like, yeah, yes, we, some of us will know what it's like. Some of us only know that. The class continued to unpack the knapsack, and the instructor continued to assume that if you were in that room to adopt, you were a white parent. It wasn't saying, white people in the room, you're white. It was saying, everybody in the room, you're white. And I was like, but wait, I'm sitting right in front of you. This is confusing. I'm not white. So it, it's a great message if what they said is all white people need to take this workshop, but they didn't. I had met a black woman who was waiting to adopt, and even she had a moment of sort of like, oh, I wonder if I, I need to, you know, look into sort of transracial workshops because I might adopt a black Latinx child. And so she was like, that would be transracial for me or transcultural, right? And so there is more to transracial adoptions than just like white people adopting non-white people. I would say the main message that they were trying to give is like, you know, you need to learn that people of color often don't feel like we have a right to exist or we often feel invisible. And literally everything happening in that session was making me feel invisible. It got so bad that Sony even started to refer to themselves as white. Like I'll be like, us white people like who are adopting blah, blah. And my partner will be like, you're not white. And they'd be like, oh, right, I'm, right, that's true. I'm not white. That's a good point. It wasn't just that one workshop. It was also in the forums and the marketing. Sony had been getting this message that transracial adoption was pretty much just for white people since they started looking for adoption agencies. This had been going on for over a year. Sony did some research and found that, except for adoption through the foster care system, the vast majority of adoptive parents are, in fact, white. It's over 90% in private domestic agencies. Sony didn't walk out of the workshop, though. They stuck with it to the end. Because as a South Asian person adopting in the U.S., Sony knew they'd have to adopt transracially. Very few adoptive children in the private domestic adoption world are Asian. According to a 2007 survey by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, there are so few Asian kids adopted in private domestic adoptions that the survey couldn't make any reliable estimates. That same survey estimated that half the kids adopted privately in the U.S. were white, 25% were black, and 13% were Latinx. One of the reasons Sony chose the agency that they were using was that it was actually pretty progressive for the adoption world. It was local where Sony lived, in a large East Coast city, and would only match parents with children born in the Northeast. The agency also had a sliding scale for adoption fees, depending on the adoptive parent's income. One way to bring in more people that are not white is to figure out a way to like lower the fees, you know? That's, that seems like really obvious. 
But in the workshops the agency offered, Sony was just one of a very small, apparently invisible, minority of people of color in the room. Sony didn't really have anyone to talk to about their frustrations. But they did have a notebook. The notebook turned into an outlet for all their pent-up feelings about the workshop. All of my notes have, like, anger, anger, like, parenting tip. Anger, 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 like, parenting tip. They'd write down the name of a children's book about race, followed by a note about how the instructor was ignoring colonialism. Or there was a time the instructor said, when your parents are growing up, this is how they would have experienced adoption. And Sony would write, probably not for my parents, who lived in India. Sony also used the notebook to vent their feelings about the paperwork, like the agency's transracial adoption form, which was set up like a quiz. Multiple choice, check boxes, long essay questions. At home, Sony entertained themselves by pretending to edit the form, writing all the ways that they would revise it. For instance, Sony's version of question three would say explicitly, are you white? If no, use a different secret form. Or there was the new version of one of the essay questions. The essay question, you are a white father taking your black child to the park. Someone calls the cops. What do you do? Sony's answer key, this is obviously a trick question to weed out white people who don't understand privilege. And while Sony was deep in their notebook, letting out all their frustrations, they had to start filling out the rest of the adoption paperwork. And that's when Sony found themselves challenged in a totally different way. Hear why in a bit. <laughs> Welcome back. So, something you should know about Sony. They actually love filling out forms. I really like paperwork. I like writing autobiographies. I like filling out financial records. Which is lucky because in adoption, there's a lot of paperwork. In addition to an adoptive parent profile, Sony also had to submit copies of their marriage certificate, theirs and their partner's birth certificates, character references, medical history. Most of the forms were about Sony and their partner to give the birth parent a better idea about who they are as adoptive parents. But there's this one form that's only for the agency. It's the one that's about the birth parent themselves and by extension, the future possible child. So the form has questions that relate to the parent during pregnancy. So drinking and like the level of drinking during pregnancy. It included things like drug use, if the birth parent or anyone in the family has been diagnosed with autism, genetic disorders, a whole list of mental health diagnoses like anxiety and depression. Like gets really fine-grained. Sony hated this form. In their professional life, Sonia dug into the ways communities of color are often overdiagnosed for a lot of these conditions, especially mental health. If I was a birth parent, I guess, I would be, like, crossed off of this. So I guess it, like, really brought up all of this idea to me of, like, what are we saying is this healthy baby that we want? Like, who gets to define what this healthy baby is? There was one question in particular that Sonia and their partner had a huge fight about. Sonia and their partner met in a meditation class. He's white. 10 years older than Sony. And like Sony, he's very thoughtful and analytical about everything. He'd been there for every step of the process. So when they had this fight, it was kind of a surprise. The question on the form was about whether or not they'd consider adopting a premature baby. Sony wanted to check yes. Sony's partner wanted to check no. 
Sony had been reading a book about pregnancy and parenting that made it sound like neonatal medicine had come a long way. Premature birth was less risky for babies and challenging for families. But Sony's partner had found some research that reported that premature babies had to be hospitalized slightly more in the first few years of life. He was like, you're just not even seeing the numbers. You're like not even willing to think about what it's actually like. You're not even talking about your feelings, is what he said to me. And I'm like, how am I supposed to take the study and turn that into a no on this form? Sony's partner wanted to be realistic about what they could or couldn't take on as parents. Could they take on a child who needed constant, permanent care throughout their life? He wanted to be able to check no on some of the boxes. And Sony couldn't do that. There is a baby, period, right? Like, there there is a baby. It will be born no matter what, regardless of what we check off on this checklist. Right. By checking boxes, you're saying no to some babies. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. You're saying, because I'm adopting, I want to leave nature out of it, right? I just want to nurture whatever baby comes into my life. Mm -hmm. I think I'm saying... I think I'm saying not that I want to leave nature out of it. I'm saying that I think like, I think my whole life I've just been like, I want to embrace nature. There is something about what I want, which is to embrace the fact that like you are you. And well, and I assume it comes from like the fact that I wanted to be embraced for I am me. And so I think I like really want to give that to somebody else. That's how I've always, I guess, thought about parenting. Adoption has always been a choice for Sony. The choice to make a family, the possibility of being chosen by a birth parent to raise their child. In the end, Sony and their partner compromised. They checked no for premature birth, but Sony asked their partner to do the checking for them. When we spoke a few weeks ago, Sony and their partner had finished all the paperwork. They just completed their final home visits from a social worker, So starting the day we spoke and up to the next two years, the adoption agency could call them at any time and say, we have a baby for you. It's like a weird fantasy book. It's like you're pregnant and it could be a two-year pregnancy, but it could be a one-week pregnancy. Sony's parents have known about their plans to adopt since the beginning. But Sony recently sent them a book to help them understand more about what adoption's like today in the U.S. When they talked last, their dad mentioned how much he'd learned from it. He said to my partner, yeah, I'm really glad I read that book because I thought that like, you know, you adopt and then later when the kid is older, the birth parent who ends up being from a really rich family will like come and like want to like take back the kid because they're like really rich and influential. And we were like, wait, what Indian movie did you see? Like, I'm very confused. Might be this one Hindi movie. Jasdish Minganga, right to Hen a Hindi movie about a guy who grows up in a poor adoptive family in the country and then is sent back to his rich city birth parents when he's an adult. You know, classic rags to riches. We were prepared for stereotypes, but not this one. Sony's dad now has a more realistic idea of how adoption's going to work. And Sony is also getting a reality check. There's going to be a baby. That's the part that's just happening now, where it suddenly hit us. And to be honest, I think, like, until now, even me talking to you about, like, race and all of this stuff, I think it's because, like, it is important, and I think it will help us be parents. And I think it's, like, distraction. 
I personally am feeling finally like, a, oh shit, like we have to buy diapers and like I don't, a car seat. Like I, we have like a growing list. Like I'm like, are we going to rent a car when we have to go to the hospital? Like what kind of carrier, baby carrier do we want? And like, we need to find a pediatrician. Like, so uh, this feels suddenly a little bit like, like there will be a baby one day. And that's crazy. <laughs> Since we spoke with Sony, they started translating their adoptive parent profile into Spanish. They've sent out their, we might have a baby soon, announcement to their extended family. And they're getting ready to tell their coworkers that they might go on parental leave at a moment's notice, anytime in the next couple years. In a bit, something completely different. We're going to go check in with Longest Shortest Times creator and executive producer, Hillary Frank. She's got some news. Can you say advertisements? Advertisements. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back. Joining me now is Longshore's Times executive producer and creator, Hillary Frank. And Hillary, I have your favorite beverage right in front of me. Do you want to hear me open it? (laughs) Yes, please. Oh, yeah. Sparkling elderflower water. (laughs) Oh, I'm so jealous. So the last time I saw you, I haven't seen you since February when I was in L.A. for my book tour. And you lured me over to the Stitcher office in L.A., by telling me that we could steal some of Jonathan Van Ness's special sodas. And we did. And aren't they delightful? <laughs> it felt so good to be so bad and drink a celebrity sodas. So I have some exciting news. Ooh. Are we getting the exclusive here? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I got this residency. It's at a place called Space on Rider Farm, and it's this farm that hosts all kinds of artists and writers and performers to develop projects for a week at a time. And the cool thing is that I got the family residency, which means I get to bring my kid with me and she'll be doing like drama activities with the other kids while I'm developing this new thing. Wow, I'm kind of jealous of Sasha now. Like, her first residency (laughs) at age nine? This is very cool. (laughs) I know. I know. She definitely feels like she won this with me. So what are you going to do there? So I'm going to be developing a new project about middle school. Middle school? Yes. Pre-teens. Because I think, like, that is the time when you change the most in your life. You are... Passing into adulthood. But the crazy thing is, like, your body's becoming an adult, but your head can't keep up. (laughs) Like, your emotions can't keep up. I just find that it's, like, a really ripe time period to make stories about. Oh, yeah. There's so much good TV right now about middle school. Yeah, like Pen15. Seventh grade is going to be so amazing. It's going to be really, really good. It's going to be, like, the best year of our lives. And Big Mouth. What are you? I am the hormone monstrous. Stranger Things, that's about middle school. Everyone dressed up last year. It's a conspiracy, I'm telling you. Be cool. Who are you gonna call? The nerds! The movie Eighth Grade. Oh my god, the pool scene. Yes, the pool scene. 
I think middle school is having a heyday right now. Even if none of us actually had a heyday when we were in middle school. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so how can we help you? I would just really love to like turn to our audience to help me get in the zone. So I have created a survey that, I mean, I hope it's really fun to fill out and maybe cathartic too. It's called, ah, middle school. Or depending on how you read it, ah, middle school. (laughs) So this is like digging back into your memories, but I also have a section for parents and guardians and teachers and any kind of like mentor who has worked with or lived with middle schoolers. So I can learn about how adults these days are relating to middle schoolers. Have you filled out your own survey? Well, I haven't filled it out, but of course, I'm mining my own experience for this project. So my middle school started in fifth grade, which I know isn't typical, but it's a pretty big age range to be sticking fifth graders with eighth graders. So I was in fifth grade, and two things happened that I think changed my worldview forever. One thing was that an eighth grader died in a freak accident playing soccer. And he just like, he hit his head playing soccer. He was the goalie and he died. And he was like, if not the most popular eighth grade boy, one of the most popular eighth grade boys. And the whole school was in mourning. The whole year kind of became about this kid dying. That same year, an eighth grade girl got pregnant and had a baby and brought the baby to school. And she was a twin and the twin stayed in school and this other girl like went off to be a mom. And I just could not believe that that was happening to an eighth grader, to another child. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this is real life. <laughs> Do you remember wanting to stay a kid and never grow up? Yes. Yeah. I think I just remember being like, I am not ready for this. (laughs) Goodbye, innocence. Goodbye, childhood. But then at the same time, there are like these surprisingly sweet moments, I think, when like you're still kind of naive and things are kind of beautiful. Like there was a time when I was friends with this girl who was also sort of an outcast, but she like had this real go get him attitude. And she just came up to me one day with another girl and they were like, we're going out for cheerleading and you're going to come with us. Um, Did you? So I did. (laughs) And? And the crazy thing is that even though I couldn't land any of the cartwheels or anything, I could climb a pyramid like it was nothing. (laughs) And the other girls could hold me up. Wow. And my friend who decided that we were going to go out for cheerleading was a great foundation for <laughs> for the pyramid. So she got to be on the bottom of the pyramid and I got to be on the top. Wow. I'm never going to be able to stop seeing you as a cheerleader now. <laughs> did you feel so cool? I think I thought it would change my social standing, but it did not. But it felt so good to be at the top of a pyramid of popular girls. Is this going to be a scene in your new project? What is this going to be, Hillary? Is it another book? Is it a podcast? Is it a TV show? What are you doing? So, like, I don't want to be too, like, annoying about this, but 
I'm going to keep it a bit of a mystery because it's still such early stages on this. So I don't want to give too much away. And I don't even totally know exactly what this thing is going to be, what shape it's going to take. All I know is I need help getting in the zone to get like in that middle school zone. Okay, I got to fill out the survey. How do people find it? So it's super easy. You just go to longestshortesttime.com and scroll down and you'll see a post called Middle School Survey. You just fill it out. It's a Google form. Yeah, and just do it now while you're thinking about all this middle schoolness. <laughs> you know, don't put it off. Your head's there. Your head's there now. You, we've like, we've stirred up memories. This will be fun. I'm standing by waiting for your middle school stories. Just go to longestshortesttime.com and scroll down till you see middle school survey. This episode was produced by me, Andreas Lenzi, with Jackie Sajiko. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Our show's creator and executive producer is Hilary Frank. Hillary's new book, Weird Parenting Wins, is out now, and we still have a few signed copies left at podswag.com slash LST. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov. We get editorial support from Peter Clowney, Antonia Acatunde, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Rekha Murthy, and Julia Wang. Next time on The Longest Shortest Time, Myra Jones-Taylor. She recently had to tell her son that she was missing back-to-school night for a work trip. As a new teacher and a new school, her teenage son looked upset. He wanted his mom there for a very specific reason. He doesn't talk about it all the time, which is why when he came to me and said, Mom, you can't miss my back-to-school night. You know, how will my teachers know I'm black? I was floored. Because even though Myra's son is black, he passes for white. We'll hear their family story next week. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time on Stitcher or wherever you're listening right now. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we want to hear your stories. Right now, we're looking for your middle school ones. So head over to thelongestshortesttime.com, look for our middle school survey, and submit your story. Da, 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 da.